0: I wonder, if you are ever about to undertake a great task, do you just jump into it cold? I don't think that you do. You probably get ready for it, don't you? You prepare. Marathon runners warm up before they run their races, right? At least that's what I've been told. (laughs) Students study for tests. Or quizzes. Right, children? Don't you, don't you study when your parents are about to examine what you've learned. Soldiers go to basic training to prepare for their work as soldiers, don't they? You who are married, did you not prepare greatly for that great wedding day of yours? You didn't just say one day, Let's go. No, you you thought about it, man. Before you even proposed, you were thinking about it. You were planning for it, weren't you? And then you prepared for that wedding, so that that great day, when it arrived, would be well accomplished. Well, see, we we understand, don't we, that great tasks require great preparation. And we also understand that when someone is going to perform a great task to represent us, that person really needs to be prepared, don't they? Someone was going to represent you or your nation in a great event. Wouldn't you want them to be the most qualified, most prepared individual you could possibly find? I'm sure the answer is yes. And and here in our text this evening, Mark presents to you the most prepared, most qualified God-man that you need who performed that great task of salvation that you need. See, our text this evening teaches us that Jesus... Your Savior is your fully prepared, anointed, confirmed, conquering Christ of God. Jesus, your Savior, my dear friends, is the fully prepared, anointed, confirmed, conquering Christ of God. We see that in our text this evening in three points. We see Christ, the anointed one. That is what Christ means. We see Christ's confirmation, and we see Christ conquering the temptations of the devil. We see Christ's anointing in verses 9 and 10. We see his confirmation in verse 11, and we see his conquering in verses 12 through 13. And so let us go now to the Scriptures and, and see this great and glorious picture of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if any of you know a whole lot about Mark, you know that when you read it, it's just things are happening right after another. Mark presents these uh, accounts in a very fast pace because he wants to get to the main point. He wants to get to the fact that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the one who came to give his life a ransom for many. And so he does not dwell very long Uh, on Christ's preparation here, but he does present a great deal of insight, a great deal of of love toward Christ when he teaches us. When you look at verse 9, we read, In those days Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, those days are the days that he was just talking about and those verses that we read previously as we, as we read through the whole text to, to get the context. These are the days of John the Baptist's ministry. John the Baptist had come forward as a prophet preparing the way for the Lord Jesus Christ. He came preaching a baptism of repentance. He came preaching the arrival of the Messiah. There in verses 7 and 8 he said, "...one is coming who is mightier than I," and this is the time when Jesus appears, during the period when all of the spiritual focus of Israel is there at the Jordan River, all of the focus of those who are pious, who see their need for a savior, all of the focus is there at John the Baptist and what he is doing. And so Christ arrives here at this time, says, from Nazareth in Galilee, There's no great fanfare, is there? There aren't armies or or great crowds of people saying, look, here he is, it's the Christ of God. No, Christ arrives from Nazareth in Galilee, an unknown man from a very disregarded city. Remember what the Jews would say about Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? It was, it was completely disregarded, and yet that is where Christ comes from. The Messiah of God, coming in a day when the focus is not on Him, coming from a place where there's no focus, coming now to the Jordan River, where all of the spiritual focus is. And what does He do? Well, He's baptized by John in the Jordan River. See, Mark has set out John the Baptist at first and now immediately shifts focus. It's as though he says, Here's John the Baptist, and John the Baptist was great among men. But he shifts focus and says, Here now is the greatest, the Lord Jesus Christ, whom we need to know about. And he says, Christ was baptized by John in the Jordan. Now, children, you are probably wondering. Why was Christ baptized? Because I just read, didn't I, that John was preaching a baptism of repentance. People were coming and confessing their sins, right? People were saying, I I need a Savior. I'm sinful. I, I must have my sins washed away. And Christ comes and is baptized. Why is that? Does Christ have any sin? No, of course not. We know that the Lord Jesus Christ was perfect. And holy, fully kept all of God's commands. And he fulfilled all righteousness. And that's what Jesus told John. That is the reason why he came for baptism. To fulfill all righteousness. See, Jesus came to John. Not to be baptized with the baptism of repentance. But to be baptized for a much glorier, more glorious excuse me, thing. He came to John to show us that he is our great Savior. He came to John to be anointed. You see, in the Old Testament, children, God had these special offices, special jobs for special men whom he set apart. Men like prophets and priests and kings. And do you know how he showed everyone that those were his chosen prophets, priests, and kings? They were anointed. And here, when Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan, he is anointed. He is shown to be your prophet, priest, and king. Isn't that amazing? Isn't that fantastic? Such such a simple thing. Jesus comes down to the water where John is, and John takes the water and pours it on his head. Because that is how prophets, priests, and kings were anointed, by having the liquid poured on their head. The water is poured on Christ's head, and here, Christ is being shown to be the great prophet, priest, and king of God's people. And that's part of what we read about in our confession of faith, isn't it? In uh, Westminster Larger Catechism 42, Christ was... Anointed and so set apart and fully furnished with authority and ability to execute the offices of prophet, priest, and king. So here, Christ is shown to be a prophet, priest, and king. And more than that, he's shown to be our great Messiah, the new federal head of his people. Now, you know that Adam. Represented all of his descendants in the Garden of Eden. So when Father Adam sinned and fell, we all fell with him. You know that in Adam all died. Well here Christ fulfills all righteousness and shows himself to be the new Adam. The better Adam. Adam. The one who will never sin and never fall. Who represents his people perfectly and completely. We see that in his baptism. We also see another anointing in verse 10. When he came up out of the water, he saw the heavens opening and the spirit like a dove descending upon him. You see, the water was poured on Christ showing him to be our prophet, priest, and king. But even more than that, even better than that, Christ had the Spirit given to him without measure. John chapter 3 tells us that Christ has the Spirit without measure, and so he gives the Spirit without measure. The Spirit is placed upon Christ, anointing him and showing him to be our prophet, priest, and king. It's a double uh, anointing. Christ, the God-man, is shown to be completely and fully a prophet, priest, and king. The men who held those offices, who were just men, they could not be full, complete, and perfect in their duties. They were still sinful men. But Christ, who fulfills all righteousness, who does all the Father's holy will, He is a perfect, perfect prophet, priest, and king for his people. We see here too, when the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, that Christ is fully equipped for all of his ministry. You see, Christ though, he is fully God and fully man, dependent upon the Spirit and all of his ministry. It is not as though he had some kind of shortcut or ease because he is fully divine. No, Christ the God-man fully depended upon the Holy Spirit of God in order to do all that he set out to accomplish, in order to do all that the Father willed him to do, in order to fully keep all of God's holy law. The anointed prophet, priest, and king relied fully upon God's spirit. And we see that here in these first two verses that Christ was anointed. Anointed as your prophet, priest, and king. Now children, you have been baptized, haven't you? You have received the waters of baptism. Well, it's a different baptism than what Christ received because we are sinful, aren't we? We are. Do you know what your baptism teaches you? It teaches you that you need the Lord Jesus Christ to be your prophet and to teach you by his word and spirit. Your baptism shows you that you need the Lord Jesus Christ as your priest. The one who shed his own blood for you the one who intercedes for you, and it shows you that you need Christ Jesus as your king as well, the one who rules and reigns over you and who conquers all of his and your enemies. That is what your baptism shows you. Do you recognize that? Have you seen that? Do you trust in the Lord Jesus? It's what he calls you to do. So when you think about your baptism or when you see uh, Dr. Piper or Pastor Groff baptizing a new baby, remember that. Remember that your baptism says, look, look to the Lord Jesus. Look to him for salvation. Look to him to be your prophet, priest, and king because he is God's anointed one, the Messiah. But In addition to Christ being the anointed one, we also see that he is the one who is confirmed, the Son of God, the Savior, of men look at verse 11 so as jesus was walking away from the water not coming up from underneath it it's not what the text says it says that as he was coming up out of the water as in walking away from it he saw the heavens open the spirit like a dove and a voice came out of the heavens whose voice is this well this is the father speaking which we see in the statement that is made the voice says you are my beloved son in you i am well pleased in this statement we see the father's great love for the lord jesus and we see the father's great approval for the lord jesus and we also see the father's acceptance for the lord jesus See, the Father's love, he says, You are my beloved Son. The Lord Jesus Christ is the second person of the Trinity. The Father's only begotten Son, eternally begotten before all worlds, who eternally dwelt with the Father, who, as John 1 says, was He was in the bosom of the Father. He was he was right there with the Father, in perfect communion with the Father. Perfect love and joy, the Father and the Spirit, the great trying God, always dwelling together. And Christ is the beloved of the Father. The Father loves the Son with great love, eternal love, everlasting love, which makes it quite miraculous, doesn't it that? The Father sent the Son to be the propitiation for our sins. The one whom the Father loves so much, He sent to be our Savior. We see also, though, the Father's great approval of Christ. He says that He is well-pleased. In the Lord Jesus Christ, his beloved Son, in whom he is well pleased. Christ has fulfilled all righteousness by coming to be baptized, to be anointed, and that greatly delights the Father. He sees his Son's great love, his Son's great adoration, his Son's great willingness to do the will. The great, trying God, and He says, I am well pleased with you. The Father loves the Son and, and He's happy with everything that Jesus does. Isn't that great encouragement, saints? The Father is well pleased with all that Christ does, and all that Christ has done on our behalf is well pleasing to the Father. Is that not a great encouragement to your heart? That all of the righteousness of Christ that has been imputed to you who who trust in Him is well pleasing to the Father. And so that when you have the righteousness of Christ, you have all the pleasure of the Father upon you. You need not shirk back in fear from God your Father. You, You don't need to be hesitant. To come before him. He is well pleased in his son. He is well pleased in his children whom he has adopted through Christ because he is well pleased in the son. The son brings him great glory and honor. So when we who are in Christ Seek to live lives holy unto God who follow after Christ our Savior. We live lives which are well-pleasing to the Father as well. The Father loves the Son. The Father is pleased with the Son. He has His approval. And the Son also has the Father's acceptance here in this phrase. Christ, the Messiah, the Anointed of God, is proclaimed to be the Son of God. A mere man. It's not an acceptable substitute for us, is he? No, because other men have their own sin to deal with. That's why the priests of the Old Testament had to make atonement for themselves. They had sin to deal with. But Christ has all of the Father's acceptance because he does not have his own sin to deal with. So he can fully deal with all of our sin. He is God and man fully representing the Father to us and fully representing us before the Father being the great high priest whom we most certainly need. It is a glorious, glorious truth. The Father says, you are my Son in whom I am well pleased. I accept you to be the Messiah who will accomplish my will and save all of those whom I have given to you. Father confirms the Son as his chosen Savior. He confirms his love and his approval and his acceptance of him. But, saints, there's some issues that have been going on throughout church history. The people have looked at this text and they have said, well, maybe, maybe Jesus was just a man at first but then when the Spirit came upon him and the Father declared, you are my son, maybe that's when Jesus kind of became God. That's that's heresy. A great heresy. Christ did not receive his divinity at his baptism. He was already God. Christ did not receive divinity uh, by the anointing of the Spirit. He was the second person, is the second person, of the Trinity. God of God, light of light, very God of very God, before all worlds, before anything was, Christ is God. And so we must take care. There are are many in our day who are still teaching heresies such as this. And they also say, well, Christ was just a man, but then received the Spirit of God and so could do all He does. And we are men, but God gives us His Holy Spirit so we can do all of these things. No, that's completely false we must stand against things like that we must understand that here God says you are my beloved son not you have become my beloved son you are the one in whom I am well pleased the father was always well pleased with the son there was never a time when the son did not have all the father's pleasure that is what our text tells us and so we must stand against such false teachings we really ought not just ignore them. We ought to confront them. Say, no, look. If, if Christ was just a man who somehow became divine at his baptism, well, then we don't have a complete Savior. We of, of all men are to be pitied. No, Christ has always, always been divine. We must also see here uh, how Christ has identified with us. In his baptism, Christ showed himself to be a man, to be the friend of sinners, to be the one who we need as our prophet, priest, and king. Oh, the one who, as we said, uh, has the spirit without measure and who gives the spirit without measure. And because of this, We ought to think highly of Him. We oftentimes kind of gloss over the baptism of Christ, don't we? It's one of those things that maybe is a little bit harder for us to understand. And so we read it, and we accept it as the very truth of God, and then we continue on. No, you ought to meditate on it. You ought to think about it. You ought to think about, here is my Messiah, my Savior. My prophet, priest, and king who who was anointed, who the Father said he is well-pleasing. You ought to think much about that. When you are dealing with sin, you ought to consider how in his baptism Christ identifies as your great high priest and as your king who will conquer all of his and our enemies. And so when you think about that, you ought also to praise him for it. Don't just think about all of the great things which Christ has done. Rejoice, dear ones. Rejoice. Give great praise. Give praise to Christ for his baptism because that is one of the ways in which he proves who he is to us. It's one of the ways in which he uh, gives his life as our Savior. So praise him. So we, we've seen his anointing in verses 9 and 10. We, we've seen the Father's confirmation of Christ in verse 11, but then something happens. Christ shows himself to be fully prepared as our Messiah by conquering, conquering the trials of his temptation. Look now at verse 12. After Christ had been baptized and the Spirit had descended upon him and the Father proclaimed his love and approval, immediately, immediately the Spirit impelled him to go out into the wilderness. Now we know John was out baptizing in the wilderness. Well here the Spirit whom Christ is, is relying upon fully, sends Christ out, uh, literally throws him out into the wilderness. It's as though Christ doesn't even get a moment to breathe, doesn't even have uh, time to bask in the Father's love and approve love of him. No, it's, it, is, it is on, on to do the work to which he has been called the Spirit. The Spirit sends him out further into the wilderness <clears throat> so that he can be tempted by Satan for 40 days. Christ is driven alone into trial. He sent out by himself. There is no John. There are no disciples yet. No friends who he can call upon for help or aid. There is Christ. Deep in the wilderness, Alone, confronting the great enemy of his people. Spirit sends him out so that he might accomplish the binding. As Dr. Piper said this morning, the, the leashing of our enemy. Here, Christ begins to bind the strong man so that he can plunder his house, so that he can take all of his people with him, defeating. The devil. He is tempted by Satan for 40 days. 40 days. Dear saints, many of us cannot last 40 minutes under temptation. Yet here Christ for 40 days is tempted. 40 days without rest. 40 days. All alone. Forty days conquering. We've seen uh, in Pastor Groff's preaching and, and the parallel passage in Mark the, the various ways in which Satan tempted our Lord. Uh, tempted him uh, with, with food. Tempted him with power. Tempted him with glory. And, and Christ resists all of those temptations. Christ as the second Adam, our new representative head, does what the first Adam could not. The first Adam fell to temptation in the glory of the Garden of Eden. Here the second Adam defeats temptation in the wilderness, completely and totally conquering throughout a great period of time and against a great enemy Christ was not tempted by one of the lesser demons or devils. Christ was not tempted by another man. Christ was tempted by Satan, the great accuser, the great enemy of God's people, the one who who was driven mad with rage for his hatred of God, for his hatred of God's people, the one who, who would stop at nothing to destroy us who would have stopped at nothing to try and destroy the Lord Jesus. Who tempted him for 40 days. And yet, Christ defeated him for us. Christ completely and totally conquered the devil. Though 40 days, Satan sent everything he had at the Lord Jesus. For 40 days, the Lord Jesus knocked away every attack completely defeated him by relying on the Spirit, by quoting the Word of God, completely and totally defeating the devil. Saints, that is amazing. We, understand, we must understand that even as sometimes we think maybe Christ had some kind of shortcut or ease, because of his divine nature, that these temptations really weren't very meaningful. It's the exact opposite. Yes, Christ is divine. No, he, he would never, ever sin because that is contrary to his nature. But these are very real temptations for him. It is not as, as though it's like a game that you might play with your children Where they hide and you pretend you can't find them. This is no game of pretend on Christ's part. He's not pretending to be tempted. No, these are very real temptations. And yet, your great king conquers his and our enemy here in this moment, treading down the devil. He conquers after 40 days. He conquers in the wilderness, with the wild beasts all around him. The wild beasts is, is imagery used uh, in the prophets for covenant curses. The wild beasts is indicative of just how far out in the wilderness he was. Uh, it shows us the great peril that he faced physically, as well as the great temptation that he was undergoing. And yet in the midst of all of that, The Lord Jesus Christ did all the Father's will, never sinning once, completely and totally binding the devil. Now, there is another modern sort of heresy uh, that has popped up, uh, especially prevalent uh, in our day and age where some people will say that because Christ was tempted, the temptations which we undergo are perfectly acceptable. Uh, They will say, well, I struggle with this sin. I'm tempted by this sin, by these inordinate desires. But Christ was tempted, and so these desires must really not be that bad. My friends, this is another great heresy. Because the Lord Jesus was not tempted by anything in Himself. We are tempted by our own desires. We are led astray by our own sinful inclinations. The Lord Jesus had none of that. The Lord Jesus is tempted by something completely outside Himself. He is tempted by our great enemy. He is tempted by Satan. He is never, never tempted by any of His own desires. In fact, we, we see the, the devil trying to use things like hunger to tempt Him. But is Christ uh, desiring to inordinately eat? Or any? No. No sin in Christ. All the temptation was outside him. So we, we must recognize these uh, modern heresies for what they are. To be blasphemies against Christ. For comparing our own sinful desires and inclinations to the temptations which Christ faced from the devil. That, no, dear Christian, do not, do not compare your sinful desires with the temptations of Christ. If you struggle with sins, and you comfort yourself saying, well, Jesus was tempted, so it must not be that bad, and I, I urge you, repent of that. Christ was not tempted by his own sinful desires. We are. We must repent of our sinful inclinations and must not comfort ourselves by blaspheming our Lord. But but when you are tempted and when you do sin, because sin you will, there's comfort here as well. Because we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with us. We have one who was tempted, yet without sin. He is not a great high priest who does not know our infirmities. No, he sympathizes with you. He knows your frail frame. He knows your sin. And yet, he did all of this. Undergoing the great temptations that He faced and conquering them, He did it so that He could be your great priest to represent you perfectly before the Father. And so dear saints. Take comfort in that. And when you sin, do not, do not shirk back from the throne of grace. Go to the Father. Repent of your sins because your great high priest is there interceding for you. And also, praise the Lord Jesus for this great act which he accomplished. Praise him for doing everything that you cannot. You fall to temptation daily. Christ never fell. And so praise him. Glorify him for that. Because he is so worthy of it. And children, when you are tempted, when you think, I really want to take this cookie, or ah, my brother or sister did something mean to me, and so I'm going to get them back. Think on the Lord Jesus, and how He defeated the devil, how He defeated temptation. Trust upon the Lord Jesus, rely upon the Holy Spirit, ask Him to help you to resist temptation. Remember that the Lord Jesus used scriptures. To rebuke the devil. Remember the scriptures that you have learned. Meditate upon them. And ask the Lord to use those to help you to resist temptation and grow in holiness. We understand, don't we, that great tasks require great preparation. The, The greater the task, the more preparation is needful. Especially especially if someone is representing you. An Olympic athlete trains a great deal before they represent their country. Dear saints, are you not so glad that your Savior, who represents you as your federal head, as, as the head of, of a new and better covenant, aren't you so glad that He is fully and completely, totally prepared to be your Savior? We've seen uh, how he was anointed as our prophet, priest, and king. and, And we've seen how the Father confirmed Christ as his choice to be our Messiah. And we see how he conquered the devil completely, how he conquered temptation completely in order to show us that he is really and truly, completely our Messiah. We see that Jesus, our Savior, is fully set forth in this text as our anointed, confirmed, conquering Christ of God. We see the only one who was and is and ever will be the one who we need for our Savior. So, dear saints, think about these things. Meditate upon the great glories of Christ shown here in this text. And if you're tempted to think that he is not a sufficient Savior, that you must do something in your own strength to win God's favor, go back to this text and see how fully the Father approves of him, and how completely he conquered his temptations. And how perfectly he was anointed for the offices of prophet, priest, and king. And trust him. Trust him today and for the rest of your lives. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to this sermon from Antioch Presbyterian Church. We are located in the historic Cashville community of Woodruff, South Carolina, near the intersection of South Carolina highways 101 and 417. For more information about Antioch Presbyterian Church, please visit AntiochPCA.com.